uh, people have to speak up and be counted mm. and to say this is the right thing to do and the reason it is the right thing to do is this 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 and this as to what, what why we should do it and we should share responsibility you know nobody says every refugee in europe should come to britain uh, uh, but we should we should take our share and if one says to people look we do need to take our share of responsibility it's not a very large share but it is an important share mm. hi lord dubs hello good afternoon to you good afternoon thank you very much for agreeing to come on the um, on the podcast i really appreciate it well happy to do that just you go ahead Thank you very much. Um, so, so, as I say, it's, it's a it's a privilege to to have you on the podcast. Um, for those who aren't sure um, who Lord Dubs is, I think the vast majority of people who will listen to this podcast will know who you are. But for the few that perhaps don't, could you just very quickly talk to me about um, why you're such a well known figure in in British politics, sort of your your background um, and how it is that that you're so well connected to the refugee um, situation in this country? Well, this thing about being a well known figure—that's just the media. <laughs> you know, the media, the, the, the media, the media picked it up, uh, and you know that's that's just how these things happen. Except that um, my friends in Safe Passage uh, and and other NGOs said that it was good to get publicity, uh, and therefore that was helpful because it also puts more pressure on the governments. So that's just the background to that. Indeed. Now, um, my back, my, my my actual personal background. Okay, I was I was born in Prague, living in Prague. Uh, and um, my father's Jewish, and when the Germans came to occupy Prague in, in March 1939, my father said to his cousins, if the Nazis come, I'm leaving. And they said they'll take their chance, and in 1942, tragically, they were taken to Auschwitz. My father left very soon after the Germans occupied in March. My mother tried to get to leave, was refused permission, and put me on a kinder transport. Uh, you know, before that, I, I, as a six-year-old, I'd, uh, I'd seen some of the changes. I hadn't been aware of the significance of them all. Uh, things like having to tear a picture of President Benish out of my school book and stick in the picture of Hitler and so on. And yeah. to cut a long story short, my mother put me on the train. I could still see her at Prague Station, German soldiers with swastikas in the background. And off the train went. And, and it took two days before, before we got to, uh, well, via Holland, Hook of Holland Harwich and Liverpool Street. Uh, I was luckier than many. Uh, I had a family member of my father meeting me. Some didn't have a, didn't have relatives. Everybody had either a relative or a foster parent, and uh, that was ba- that was basically it. Uh, that's that's how I came to the UK, um, and and uh, the media picked up the story with some alacrity when I got involved in campaigning for refugees, uh, and uh, I'd not previously felt a need to talk about it particularly. You know, why should I talk about my background? But the media picked it up uh, and made quite a lot of it. And it was quite helpful in one way because the government would have found it harder to make too much of an attack on unaccompanied child refugees, given that I was there, because it looked like a personal attack on me. So to that extent, it was politically quite helpful. And um, I, I guess for, for somebody with, with, with your backstory, like you say, it would be very difficult um, to to accuse you of, of of anything suspicious or underhand because you've 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 lived the life of a refugee. So in many ways, you're the perfect spokesperson for modern refugees because um, you you've got that lived experience. Well, I suppose so. Although, of course, um, my journey was a much shorter one. It was just a, a, a forty-eight hour journey from Prague uh, from Prague to London. It seemed a very long one indeed at the time. Uh, whereas some of the uh, child refugees I've met who've come here, you know, some of them have taken six months or longer uh, to get to, to get even to France. Wow. So the, the length of the journey, uh, the, 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 length, the length of the journey was quite different. Although I suppose uh, it's difficult to think anybody who came on one of these kinder transport trains uh, would have survived the Holocaust. So to that extent, there was, a, there was a certain fate awaiting us. And so the kinder transport saved me from that fate and saved uh, it altogether 10,000 others from Germany, Austria and Czechoslovakia in yeah. the period 38-39. Yeah. Um, for those who perhaps aren't familiar with the kinder transport, I suspect many will be, could you just quickly touch on what, what that is, how it was established um, and the significance of it? 
I think it was established in, in, uh, in, in different countries, uh, depending upon the local circumstances. As far as Czechoslovakia was concerned, uh, the key person, not the only one, the key person uh, was a man called Nicholas Winton, mm. who stumbled on the situation quite by accident in 1938-39. He was going skiing in Switzerland, and a friend of his sort of contacted him and said, come to Prague and see what's happening. And what Nicholas Winton did, which was quite terrific, he saw the problem, and unlike other people who see problems and say that's awful and walk away, he felt he had to do something. Mm. So he stayed in Prague and organized a number of trains, I think six in all, taking altogether 669 children from uh, Prague to the UK. It took a lot of doing, he had to get permission from the British government, that wasn't straightforward. Uh, the Germans treated him very suspiciously as to what he was doing. It, it, it was, and he had to tackle the bureaucracy on the German side and on the British side. It was a formidable achievement. Now, there were people who did similar things and helped uh, child refugees escape from Austria and Germany in the mm. main. Uh, and altogether, Britain took 10,000 child refugees in, that, in the period from the autumn of 1938 until September 1939. And presumably it stopped in 1939 because it, it was no longer possible to, to get them out of there. There was one train in Prague which was ready to leave and the war started uh, uh, and none of the people there were able to leave and we don't know whether any of them actually survived. Uh, no, it, it, all, it all stopped. It all stopped because the war started after all. Germany attacked Poland on the 1st of September yeah. and there was nothing possible. Possible when we were in the war from the 3rd of September, there was nothing else possible. So that was the end of it. On the other hand, 10,000 child refugees coming to Britain in a period of shorter than a year mm. was quite an important achievement mm. and it set the tone for some of the campaignings on behalf of child refugees uh, because that was a quite a, uh, a generous gesture by the British government. Very few other governments were prepared to open their doors to the kinder transport children. Mm. When I ran my um, crowdfunder last year for refugee charities, one of the things I wrote in the crowdfunder was both the story of the Kinder Transport and also the story of the SS St. Louis, the ship that was turned away from America that had um, Jewish refugees on it. I was, I was, I wanted to ask you, what was the UK um, exceptionally good at bringing refugees in? Was the UK an exception in that sense? Because obviously America did end up taking a lot of Jewish refugees eventually. But in that period where the kinder transport was taking place, um, it felt as though the UK was maybe one of only a few countries, like you just touched on, that was prepared to take the numbers that we're describing. Well, it was probably the only country in Europe that was prepared to take the children, uh, or, or the only country that was to take any significant number. So yes, there, there were arguments reading the, the parliamentary reports in Hansard. There were quite some arguments, of course, in the House of Commons about all this, but eventually Britain said yes, and they came. And, and I think it was a period when Britain actually was, was pretty generous. Now, Britain wasn't generous to everybody and their stories of other people who tried to come to Britain and it was all very, very difficult. But as far as the 10,000 of us, if I can say of us children, uh, yes, I, I think it'd be wrong to say Britain was other than generous at that time, mm. and it was a, it, it was a, it was an important important thing to happen. Yeah, and it, it, it stayed in our history as, as something that Britain did, and indeed there is a plaque uh, just off the centre lobby in the House of Commons with a thank you uh, on behalf of the ten thousand children, a thank you to Britain for giving us safety. That's a that's a really nice thing, I guess, to to be able to walk past. I, I, you can't escape that history and that sense of duty that. Britain was a part of in those days. No, so and, and in fact, we used it about three or, four, three or four years ago as a basis for another photo opportunity to commemorate uh, the putting up of the plaque, which, which had been put about 10 years earlier. Uh, and we had the Speaker of the House of Commons, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the Chief Rabbi all came at short notice, and we rededicated the plaque. So, yes, it was uh, symbolically important. That's lovely. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're a humanist, aren't you? You're, you're a fellow of the um, Humanist Association. Yes, I am. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you just very briefly, um, have you, have you found it easy in your life to, as, as somebody obviously with Jewish heritage to um, operate in that kind of Jewish space um, without being a religious person? 
Well, of course, I, I had to. I, I was brought up. My father, my family was secular, so I, I wasn't okay. brought up in a religious sense. On the other hand, one gets to schools in England, uh, and it, and I, I was not mature enough to know that I was a humanist. I just uh, had some doubts, and it gradually uh, uh, persuaded me over the years that this was the right position to adopt. Have I had difficulties? Actually, the Jewish Jewish synagogues have been incredibly open and welcoming. Mm. I, w- I was invited to a big event. Uh, uh, a Jewish event, uh, several synagogues together in, in in West London some years ago, and they introduced me as a humanist and gave me a round of applause. So I th- I think the Jews are actually uh, pretty relaxed about it. Mm. Some of the Christians are. Uh, uh, there are different attitudes, to, uh, different attitudes to it, but I think one has to be honest and say this is this is who I am. I don't think it's right to, right to pretend otherwise. No, uh, I agree. Yeah. On the whole, I have not found it difficult. People have been quite tolerant. Maybe the things that have happened that wouldn't have happened uh, if, if, if I hadn't been known as a humanist. But look, this is what I believe in. Uh, I think it's important one should be honest with oneself and honest with the world. And, and uh, as I say, from the point of view of the Jewish community, I find it very straightforward. They've been more than welcoming and they've known it. I haven't, I haven't kept it a secret. Yeah. The, the reason I ask is because I'm, I'm also a humanist and I've, I've um, represented humanism on sort of interfaith uh, panels and things in the past myself. Um, and I, I know that there can be a sort of silent friction in, in, in certain rooms when, when you're doing uh, interfaith stuff. And when you mentioned that you did this with the chief rabbi and the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, I just wondered if, if, if there was any other kind of um, friction or, or issues with that. But I, I guess it wouldn't be because the topic is so universal and there's so much solidarity there. It transcends religious and ethnic and, and, and cultural um, barriers, doesn't it? Well, I think so, uh, and, and that has been that has been the attitude of many of the faith groups that, that, that they feel this is something important to them, uh, and and they don't. They, look, I, I didn't tell the Archbishop of Canterbury or, or, or the Chief Rabbi of the Humans. I didn't, I didn't, we had a very short period with some photographs and taken, uh, and, and that was that. So I, I don't know whether they they picked up on the humans or not, but generally. Generally, I think I think the various faith groups that I've gone to are aware I'm a humanist. There was one event um, I met community groups in Yorkshire. Uh, uh, it was actually during the last general election campaign, and uh, and the, the, the MP who I was supporting there. And don't forget, uh, I, I must emphasise everything I've done for child refugees has not been on a party political basis. It's been on a cross-party basis as much as I've been able to achieve that. Yeah. It's absolutely crucial in terms yeah. of. Trying to, trying to win things. But I was introduced to a humanist and I saw a, a, a woman, she was a, a vicar, local church and vicar, and I said, uh, I went up to her afterwards and I said, look, uh, you may not uh, approve of me. Oh, she said, of course I do. She said, you and I believe in the same thing. It's just that I believe in God as well. <laughs> Which I hope, nice comment, exactly, anyway. exactly. And that's, that's really lovely to hear because um, that's, that's largely been my experience. I think on a topic such as this, there, there, there can be no there can be no friction really on on this because it's just it, as I say it transcends those those barriers. Well, of course, it's the people who invite me. It it may be the ones who would otherwise invite me and who don't that I, I, I'll I'll never know about. That's but true. I I found that I found that that those people who are sufficiently humane and humanitarian uh, are are willing to discuss refugees and the issues without being too hung up on on the particular background. Yeah, of course. Uh, of an individual who's, who's, yeah. who's advocating the case, unless that background is helpful, as, as they keep telling me in my case it is. Yeah. So I, I've, not, I've, not, I've not found a problem. As I say, I, I think it's important one should be honest about things. And, mm-hmm. and uh, it's I'm more comfortable being honest with myself and then it's easier to be honest with other people as well. Yeah, 100%, totally with you on that. Um, I just want to go back to Nicholas Winton because he's a really interesting character, somebody that you, I think, were friends with um, for quite a number of years before he passed away. Yes, I was, yes. Yeah. Um, this is somebody that, that potentially, well, did risk their life to do something for other people. But what's extraordinary for, seems to me is that, that during the Second World War, there were, there were millions of people that risked their life. So what, what my question is, why was there only, why were there so few people willing to do what Nicholas Winton did at that time? Well, well, when you say risked his life, I don't know whether he risked his life or not. I mean, he may have done. He certainly risked a lot of things. Yeah. And I, I think he's... I repeat, he stumbled on the situation virtually by accident in the, in, in the, in the autumn winter of 38-39. And he stumbled on it, and he did what he wanted to do, which was to help people, and he put himself out enormously. 
but he he also ad had adopted a number of other good causes. You know, he, he so he he was a real humanitarian in, in a very wide sense. Okay, and he did all this. He did all this uh, because he felt he had no choice but to do it. And I, I became, I, I didn't know anything about him. I knew I'd come in a kinder transport. So many years later, when it all blew up on television, the story of his story, and I got to know him and yeah. we had little events. Yeah. Uh, don't forget, I was six years old. So I was one of the youngest on a kinder transport, but we all, we, we all got together and, um, and uh, I had meetings with him and so on. Sometimes there were birthday parties at the Czech embassy. And, and was, he was absolutely bright and sharp. I once said to him, um, Mickey, how are you? I think he was 102 then. He said, I'm fine from the neck upwards. Wow. Absolutely sharp, absolutely yeah. bright. Love talking, great conversationist, enjoy talking about politics. Yeah. Uh, a, a wonderful human being. And obviously, mm. I owe my life to him. Mm. Uh, and uh, he, was, he was sharp until uh, his, at his 106th birthday party, he was beginning to fade a bit, but he was still intellectually very sharp. Yeah. And so, you know, he was an inspiration to many people he ought to be because he, he, he yeah. saw a problem and he dealt with it and felt he had to help other people. And yeah. that was quite something. He, was, he kept he, quiet for many years. I say we didn't know about it until years yeah. later. Yeah, yeah, because it all, it all came out on that BBC, um, what was it That's Life in 1990, uh, 1988, wasn't it? That famous TV moment. Of, yeah, there was that. There were a couple of programmes. Then he came in one day and saw us. And, oh, yeah, it was all, it was all very, very emotional. And... and uh, and uh, and uh, absolutely, I felt very privileged to know him and to be a friend of his. Yeah, for sure. I wanted to ask you: Is 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 are the Nicholas Wintons? Are there many Nicholas Wintons around today, or is is he a dying breed? I don't know. Don't forget, people didn't know about him. He kept it quiet for many many years. He didn't want the sort of accolades that, mm. that I think he deserved and should have had. Yeah, yeah. He didn't really want those. I think he took us. He took a pride in the fact that were. 669 of us and if you add all the children and grandchildren and so on there are several thousand mm. people he was, mm. whose lives uh, who owe their lives to him uh, there may be other people who are doing great things i mean there were some there was uh, you know during the nazis there were people who helped jews to escape under the nazis and so on maybe they just didn't quite get that publicity that's all but mm. i hope there are, I hope there are other human beings although he was even among special people he was pretty much in the fore yeah yeah no i think he's he's somebody that i think we ought to know in greater number i think you know we have a lot of celebrities and youtubers and people that we know about these days but that's the sort of person who's a, who's a true role model the sort of people the sort of person that we ought to be teaching in schools i mean i'm a school teacher and i i've 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 spoken about him in the past and things so yeah i think a, a true role model in, in in that sense definitely um, yeah, but there may, I say there, there may be other people. Yeah, you know, one hears of people. I think Schindler and so on. Schindler, there of course. People, yeah, yeah. There are people who've done things, and maybe there are more than we know about. Uh, look, uh, you know, at a more hum, at a humbler level, you know, when I and you may come on to this when I've gone to refugee camps, uh, I've met um, a lot of young people who are volunteers working with refugees. Yeah, and they are ter terrific young people who've given up a year or more of their lives to help their fellow human beings in mm. in very difficult physical and emotional circumstances. Yeah, and so you know, all these people deserve accolades, and they hardly ever mentioned. So that's why I, I'm very keen to mention them. Yeah, me too. I I, I interviewed the lady who founded um, Care for Calais a few a few weeks ago, and yes. she had a similar story. Obviously, there wasn't the um the, the level of danger of 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 uh, Sir Nicholas, but she said that she just saw something on TV and was compelled to do something about it. Just up, uprooted her life and went down there and, and three three or four years later, or whatever it is that she, she's been doing it now, um, she's still yeah. going. Yeah, absolutely. No, I met her I met her in Calais and, uh, yeah, yeah. and, 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 and she does a, a, a great job. Well, there are a number of NGOs that, that do terrific jobs, uh, mainly small NGOs, mainly consisting of younger people, but people who, are, who have a, a level of commitment, which I find is is both fantastic and, and very humbling to mm. meet people who are so who have such a level of dedication and commitment to their fellow human beings. Yeah. I think these are terrific stories, not a, not broadcastly widely enough, not appreciated widely enough, but, but they are terrific people there. Uh, totally agree. Yeah, totally agree. And that's partly what this podcast is about. Really, is is trying to amplify those those stories a little bit. Yeah. Um, I wanted to come on to the the, the Dubs Amendment for the um, the Brexit bill, which um, a lot of people was following. You know, were following at the time. 
there were campaigns set up to help. I remember I shared loads of stuff on social media about it. Um, what was the Dubs Amendment and what happened in the end? Oh, uh, well, I'll tell you a story. I could spend hours talking about it. Sure. What happened was what happened was that we discovered, uh, we, we in Parliament discovered or learned that there were 95,000 unaccompanied child refugees somewhere in Europe. Mm. Northern France, Italy, Greece, and so on. And I started with colleagues in the Commons, particularly with Edith Cooper. And uh, as a result of that, it happened that there was an immigration bill going through Parliament. So I put down an amendment uh, saying we should take, actually, it was, uh, the amendment said we should take 3,000 of them. Okay. There was quite a lot of consternation. I mean, I could write a book about the, all the sequence of events mm. of consternation. The, the then Home Secretary summoned me in at Theresa May and asked me whether. Um, I first met her. I first met her at Nicky Winton's birthday party. He lived in Maidenhead. He was a constituent of hers. And I That's first ironic. Met her, yeah, uh, uh, absolutely ironic. When he had a hundredth birthday party, which is quite terrific, and she appeared. Of course, MPs would uh, like to go to hundredth birthday parties. It's, mm. it's a good thing. To, I appreciate MPs. The That's why I met her. She asked me to come in again to come and see her, and she asked me to withdraw the amendment. And I said, why? And she said, well, if, you, if the amendment goes through, uh, other children will follow. And I said, but we cannot turn our back on children who are sleeping, it was then the jungle in Calais or on the mm. Greek islands who are in terribly uh, difficult conditions, vulnerable to trafficking, to criminality, to prostitution mm. in some mm. cases, uh, awful, awful situations. I just, I just can't do it. Anyway, we parted company. The amendment passed the Lords of the big majority, got the commons, where it was narrowly defeated. And the government used the technicality. I can tell you, if you want the technicality, a parliamentary technicality. Go for it. Cut it, if you want. Go for it. Um, well, the, well, there's something called financial privilege, which I should have known about, but I didn't. And it basically says if the Lords put down an amendment, which involves expenditure, then the Commons can uh, have to be alerted. The Speaker of the Commons has to alert them to the fact that uh, financial privilege is involved. Now, um, almost every amendment uh, has some financial expenditure. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the government used no other argument against my amendment except that it was a matter of financial privilege and should be voted down. Wow. It was voted down. It went back to the Lords. We had to withdraw, uh, pull out the figure of 3,000 because you can put money to a figure of 3,000 more than you, you, can, you can put this to a, a broad statement saying the government should consult with local authorities and take refugees. Um, and, and then the second time, after it passed the Lords, uh, the Home Secretary asked me to go and see again, and she said she proposed to accept the amendment. Now, that was fine up to a point. And, and then the government said they cannot find local authorities that will provide foster parents. The model was that uh, unless they were 17, uh, they would, the local authorities would find foster parents. And the government said they had to call a halt to it when 480 children had been accepted. Well, we, you know, with Safe Passage in particular, we, we, we uh, um, did a survey of local authorities and we found they were willing to offer 1,600 places. Uh, and so that was the argument there, uh, but the government said they've closed it down and that's it. Now, I should mention there's a second scheme uh, and that's this, under the European Union, there's a Dublin Treaty and under one part of the Dublin Treaty, there's a provision that a child a refugee child in one EU country can apply to join relatives in another. So a Syrian boy in France uh, could apply to join an uncle of same Birmingham, yeah. brother or father. And I got an amendment passed which would ensure that Britain would negotiate to continue that provision even after we left the EU. That was passed in 2017. The government withdrew it, deleted that, that provision in, in, a, in a further uh, act in, uh, in 2019, and I've tried to get it back in again. I remember. And that amendment, yeah. it, that amendment is crucial because it's a matter of family reunion. Yeah. And a lot of the children, young people who, who, who travel to Northern France do it because they, because they got relatives in Britain. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and for the government to be putting itself in the position of not supporting a family reunion is I think really pretty bad because if the family are there and they can take a child, yeah. you don't need to find a foster family, you've got a family, yeah. it's almost seamless and it is humane and proper to do. Yeah. And so 
the government have made real difficult. If they say it's still possible, but it's so difficult to achieve now that they've effectively closed that down as well. So we should be arguing about it um, in the Queen's speech. Uh, and we should be arguing about it when, when they bring along something called the Sovereign Borders Bill, where I hope there'll be opportunities to move amendments to, to again protect the position of child refugees, some who don't have family here, but above all those who do have family here, so that family reunion becomes a key part of our policy. Mm. And it feels like such low-hanging fruit, family reunion, it just seems like, I don't know how you can possibly argue on an ethical basis that that's not something that we ought to be doing, especially if the European Union and all the 27 member states there are, have legislation that allows, and we don't. We just seem like such a pariah, a sort of a, a moral pariah on this issue. It's bizarre. Yeah. Well, well, that, well, that's right. I mean, are, I have to say there are some European countries that are even more, uh, more moral pariahs. For example, the Hungarians, mm. who say refugees are no concern of theirs. Um, uh, you know, they're only interested in white Christians. So there are countries that are worse. But yes, when when, um, when, um, when the people arrived on the Greek islands, the Greek government made a plea for help. And mm. the Germans actually also made a plea for help on a cross-Europe basis when, when they took in about nearly a million Syrians, to remember, much to yeah. Germany's credit. Yeah. Uh, Angela Merkel did that very well. And countries failed to respond. Then when there was a fire on Lesbos and Moria camp, some countries did step in to yeah. help to help. But we did, we did very little. We took a few under the, under the existing scheme for family union, and that's it. So, uh, you know, we're not the worst, but we're by no means the best. And one of the key arguments is that we should share responsibility with other European countries. We can't let the accident of geography say that all the refugees should stay in Greece, Italy, and Malta, which is basically what it would mean if nobody were prepared to take anybody who traveled through what the Home Office now call a safe country. Mm. And it's a, it's a tragedy that, that, that Priti Patel, the Home Secretary's uh, latest document, which we'll be, uh, we'll, be, we'll be debating during the Queen's speech, uh, says that people must, must claim asylum in the first safe country they reach. Well, first of all, that I understand is not part of the 1951 Geneva Convention. No, it's not, no. Uh, and, and secondly, it in any case mean, as I said a minute ago, that all the refugees who, uh, who reach Europe would be in Greece and Italy and Malta. Mm. And mm. that is surely an untenable position, absolutely untenable for those countries, and, 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 and quite wrong to believe, to believe that that should be the base of the policy. Mm. So it's, it's very disappointing. Now, there is a caveat to all this, of course. Uh, uh, shall I go on into this? Or yeah, please I do. Yeah. Yeah. Look, one of the one of the things I learned, and the reason the government accepted my amendment way back, uh, I should have said it at the time when I was talking about meeting Theresa May, uh, was that public opinion in the course of my amendment going backwards and forwards between the Lords and the Commons till it was eventually accepted by the government, public opinion woke up. And public opinion woke up and people saw these dreadful photographs of ships drowning or dinghies sinking in the Mediterranean, people yeah. drowning. They saw that little Syrian boy, Alan Kurdi, lying, a little Syrian boy, drowned on the Mediterranean beach. And yeah. British public opinion woke up to this. Mm. And I believe that that is what brought pressure to bear on some of the Conservative MPs who decided that they would support child refugees. And the government, realising they were on the way to losing the second time the amendment got to the Commons, uh, the government decided to concede. Um, you know, which is sensible of them, uh, 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 so governments do when they're going to lose. So I've always felt that public opinion is absolutely crucial in this. And the tragedy in some European countries is that they lost public opinion a bit, and some of the extreme right-wing political parties exploited that, they and, they, uh, and they got votes uh, votes uh, by the cynical exploitation of the refugee issue, and, and, and that damaged Angela Merkel in Germany, uh, it affected the politics of Italy, mm. the National Front in France did well, and yep. other European countries. And, and, and so my bottom line has always been, we must make sure we do our very best to keep public opinion on side. Mm. And that means explaining to people what these children have gone through, these young people, what they've gone through, what they've fled. I mean, there was one Syrian boy who said he'd seen his father blown up in front of him by a bomb in Aleppo or Damascus. Mm. Now, how can any young person ever recover from seeing something like that happen to mm. one of their, their parents? Uh, but it is important that the public know this, and they know that these young people have been on long journeys, 
desperate journeys, frightening journeys, exploited by traffickers, never certain whether they'd make it, some of them drowning on the way in, in, in the Mediterranean or, or across the channel, the terrible journeys. And what they want is still to resume their education, have some affection, love in their lives, and, and, and being able to live, live like ordinary young people. Yeah. That's, that's what they want. Yeah. And, and that is my plea to the British public, that that's why public support is important, to help mm. these people. Mm. Totally. Do, do you think that the, the, there's um, a concerted effort in certain parts of our press, I'm talking about you on, on, on the right, to conflate immigrants and refugees? And do you think that plays a part in the UK in terms of how public opinion responds to refugee crises? Um, yeah. Go on. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it does. And I, I think, unfortunately, there has been confusion about this. And, and, and I think it's important to draw a distinction between mm. refugees who are fleeing for safety uh, for their lives. They're fleeing from persecution, they're fleeing from war, torture, imprisonment, horrible things. Yeah. Uh, and migrants, and there's nothing unworthy about seeking to, to, to improve your life by mm. migrating to another country, nothing unworthy about it at all, but, but, but it's a different, they, they don't have the same human rights protection that refugees should have. Mm. Uh, and we have to, as a, every country has to decide what it's what the needs of its workforce are and which people it would be appropriate to, to have come in i don't agree with the government's policies on some of this but but at least as a principle the government are trying to establish mm. uh, but that's very different from refugees who i think should be higher on the on the order of priority because because it's a humanitarian issue for them it's not just an yeah. economic issue yeah and i think it's very important that we have a fair way of distinguishing between those who are refugees and, and those who Quite worthy economic migrants, but the mm. economic migrants. For heaven's sake, our care homes need a hundred thousand staff. Uh, any migrant coming here wants to work in our care homes should be welcomed with open arms instead of being kept out by the government's uh, by the government's point system. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, we've got an NHS staffing crisis. There, there, are, there are staffing crises on on farms as well at the moment. So yeah. Yeah. So 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 we, we do need the people. We certainly mm. need the people, and, mm. and we shouldn't just limit the people we take as, as, as inward migrants to those who, who who are at the higher end of the income scale yeah, and so totally, on. Totally. Uh, uh, because we, we should we should get people where where there, where there is a need, uh, where where we have where our labour own labour market can't provide the people, and where we need them. And the health services is, is empty one, or the care home sector care service, but there are others as well, like horticulture, agriculture, and so on. Where we need people, so yes, absolutely. But uh, but uh, but that conflation, the confusion between refugees and migrants, doesn't always help. And I'm always anxious to, to to say emphatically, you know, we must give a priority to people who are fleeing for safety. Yeah, I, I, I I'm totally with you on that. I wanted to ask you about the 2016 um, Brexit referendum. So partly the reason why I left teaching and came into politics was because of Brexit. I don't want this to become about Brexit, but for me, one of the sort of um, it was a watershed moment I felt in, in, in political campaigning. Vote Leave beamed those ads out to people with those big red invasion arrows from Turkey and from Syria and Iraq. And they said, 70 million Muslims are coming to, to live next door to you. Nigel Farage stood in front of that um, uh, breaking point poster. And there was just a, a real difference in the campaigning of Vote Leave and Leave EU compared to the Cameron years. And it felt very Steve Bannon, Roger Stone-esque and deliberately xenophobic. Um, and after that, there was a big spike in hate crime. And I wanted to ask you, have you seen a change in public sentiment and public opinion um, off the back fr from 2016 onwards? Because my view is I was seeing a big change, particularly on social media, lots of people, lots of European friends that I have saying, I never encountered this prior to 2016, but now I'm being told to go home now, now I'm actually hearing racism and xenophobia and bigotry uh, more regularly. Yes, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm, I'm afraid you're right. Uh, I, I did a lot of uh, campaigning during the referendum, uh, so obviously campaigning to remain in the EU. Yeah. And uh, I was picking up some of the things people were saying, and I thought Boris Johnson saying that if we didn't leave the EU, 70 million Turks were poisoned to Britain. Mm. That was not true. That was an outright lie. Yeah. He knew it. Many. He knew it because any country could have, uh, no country could join the EU unless all all members of the EU agree it. And mm. he knew. Yeah, he knew that. He knew there was no way in which Turkey would be accepted into the EU. Mm. Uh, for some years at least. So and it was that. it was bizarre that Boris went down that road as well because he'd done a documentary 
a few years before, arguing for Turkey's entry into the EU and the fact that his granddad wasn't an Ottoman um, journalist as well, which is that makes it even more bizarre. So, well, yes, but there were political advantages to him in taking a different position. Oh, of course, wasn't, yeah, yeah, of course. Ever this but, yeah. but you know, there was a. I, I was. I knocked on the door, and the and this woman said, she, "This was." I was in a larger main area, in London. But but but, but in, I knocked on the door, and she said she was going to vote vote leave. And I said, "Why?" And she said, "Because the immigrants." And I said to her, "Look, I'd recently had a small medical procedure just for one day in the local hospital, and everybody who treated me, doctor, nurses, and so on, they were all immigrants. Where mm. would I have been without them?" Mm. And she said, very pointedly. It's not the ones that are here that bother me. It's the further ones that are going to come. Mm. Hence, Boris Johnson's argument, which is it had an immediate effect on, on Nigel Farage's poster and so on. Uh, and I think the atmosphere was poisoned. Uh, uh, and it's become harder to argue the case for child refugees mm. because people are now, uh, you know, I, 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 most people who contact me are still being supported, by the way. Uh, I, I don't feel I'm being victimized, but, but there are people who say this is a terrorist offense, it's all my fault, and so on. Um, but but on the on the whole, on the whole, although I think Brexit poisoned the atmosphere, it still made me feel I need to redouble my efforts to try and keep public opinion on side. But I've heard terrible stories. You know, European people live in a little village, and after the referendum, uh, the Belgian couple, the, 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 their neighbours said to them, when are you, when are you going to get out? Yeah. Shocking. Yeah. On the other hand, yeah. there are also people who have gone out their way to be supportive of, 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 of our EU friends That's and true. say, please yeah. don't, don't be put off by this. Uh, I think it was just a very nasty, nasty situation for us as a country. Uh, and we just got to argue to get over it. Mm. Uh, but I think some damage was done pretty permanently by that, mm. semi-permanently. Yeah. Um, did you did you catch what happened in Glasgow over the, over the last two days with the refugee, the, with the Home Office van being um, prevented from taking the two? Yeah, well, that's right. Well, that was good, yes. Local people actually said, we don't, we don't want to allow these people to be deported. Yeah. I don't know who they were, people were, whether they were refugees or not, but there was a local feeling. And we've had that happen on more than one occasion. Mm. And indeed, indeed, when my amendment was going through way back, uh, what was encouraging was the, the growth of all these local groups to support refugees. And yeah. I met quite a few of them. Uh, and I think they, they very quickly uh, were set up and they said we're going to help. And we want to campaign, and we want to be positive. And I think that that, that, that was that was pretty pretty encouraging that that that, um, uh, that, that, that this happened. So you know, we, we, it's it's politics. We've got to keep arguing publicly, mm. uh, uh, and people will respond very well very well if their if their humanitarian instincts are triggered, as mm. they as they seem to have been in Glasgow. And, and, and I don't think Glasgow is an isolated instance. I think other people become very defensive of somebody in their community uh, who the Home Office want to threaten to remove, particularly if it's somebody who's been there for some time uh, 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 and who has nowhere, nowhere obvious to go if they're thrown out because their links are entirely with this country. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about how, I know we've just touched on this slightly, but how, how easy is it for char uh, for, for for safe passages through Europe to the UK at the moment, have they got, have they been removed or are they harder now? Because when I interviewed the lady um, from Care for Calais, she was talking about this a lot. Um, and I was interested in your view as well, because obviously when we were part of the EU, like you said earlier, we had legislation to, to allow, um, it, it, was, it was easier to do it, but now it's been um, taken away. Can child refugees still reach the UK? Well, the Home Office will say they can, but it's very, very... I mean, COVID has, of course, made things a bit harder as well. Okay. But, 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 but yes, it, 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 has meant, it has become more difficult. The Home Office maintained there's still a provision in the immigration rules. There is a very limited provision uh, for family reunion and so on. But on the whole, it has become much more difficult. And, of course, a lot of the... Um, a, a, a lot of the, um, the policy to make it effective depends upon having good cooperation with our with our European friends. Mm. And, and if, if our relation with France and, uh, have gone through a bad patch uh, and we need to have good relations with the French in order that we, that we can facilitate people still coming here. Mm. Uh, and, and I think that needs that needs a positive effort to have good, not just for the sake of refugees, for the sake of 
uh, our relations with, with with other European countries generally. But 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 I, I think we need a we need to have good relations, and a lot of it effort needs to, needs to be based on cooperation. You know. Uh, uh, otherwise, for the home secretary to say they'll just turn these boats back, we can't turn people drowning in the, in the English Channel. We can't turn them back like that. It's inhumane. We, we, we might say to the French, let us together um, find a way of seeing how many of these people qualify under the Geneva Convention or with their family union and so on. But let's do it jointly and cooperatively. Mm. People say sometimes, why are they all coming to England? Actually, most of the refugees don't come. That's true. Tiny minority do, mm. uh, and, and, and many of them in France stay in France. But I say this: if if you if you take it in a wider sense, somebody says to me, "Why does the Muslim come countries do more?" Well, the answer, my answer is: Turkey is taken between three and four million refugees, and Lebanon and Jordan about one million each. Yeah. Uh, I make out five and a half million, and mm. and that is a large number that those countries have taken compared to the small numbers we're arguing we're arguing about coming to Britain. Yeah. So it's it's not right to cast the dispersions on, on on some of the countries in in the region. They're doing you know they're taking all of refugees. Yeah, I remember uh, reading a, st a statistic on the um, Care for Calais website which said that between 70 and 80 of the world's refugees are currently homed in developing countries, um, which puts that into perspective. 70-80%, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's right. Uh, uh, for example, a million Rohingyas fled uh, Myanmar and then I'm in, in Bang Bangladesh. Bangladesh, that's a large number, but of course they're out of reach of the media and the television cameras, so we, we don't know so much about them. But can I just add this, that if there are, say, about 30 million refugees in the world, okay, but there are also 35 million or so displaced persons. And displaced persons are people who fled for safety to another part of their own country. And the problem with that is that they don't have, they don't have the protection of the Geneva Convention. Mm. There's no international convention that protects somebody who's internally displaced, um, even though they may be suffering just as much as a refugee who's fled, who's fled across the border. And the argument put is that if you start defending the rights of people who are internally displaced, uh, then you're interfering in, in the internal affairs of another country. And, and, and so we're stymied on that one. But we should remember that there are 65, 70 million people in the world who are, uh, as it were, have fled for safety, mm. either within their own country or in other countries. Mm. So Europe is dealing with a very small number indeed compared to that. Yeah. Um, I, I'm interested in your opinion on how big numbers of refugees and migrants or perceived big numbers specifically specifically in the uk but also i don't know if you caught that um incident last week where 30 or so um ex-generals of the french army wrote an open letter to macron saying that we're on the we're on the cusp of civil war islam's taken over um how how do you square protecting uh, immigrants and, and 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 speaking up immigrants and also refugees but also fighting the far right who seem to be very good at exploiting fear around what many people consider to be an invasion. And that language has been used as an invasion by Farage and others. Yeah, well, well um, look, uh, politicians in Europe have been poisoning the atmosphere. Uh, and uh, uh, I think we haven't had quite the extreme uh, right-wing political parties here. I mean, some people say we've got them, but I don't think we have quite the, in the way they have, for example, with the National Front in France, a real threat to Macron at the yeah. next election. Yeah. Uh, well, look, I can only say this, that I think politicians who believe in humanitarian uh, policies have to speak up. Uh, people have to speak up and be counted mm. and to say this is the right thing to do. And the reason it is the right thing to do is this, 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 and this, as to what, what, why we should do it. And we should share responsibility. You know, nobody says every refugee in Europe should come to Britain, uh, uh, but we should we should take our share. And if one says to people, look, we do need to take our share of responsibility. It's not a very large share, but it is an important share. Mm. Uh, and 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 I think we should do that. But but we we have to avoid politicians or have to speak out against politicians who poison the atmosphere or people like those French generals. Uh, the Muslim community, I spoke to Muslim groups quite often uh, and they are supportive and sympathetic. Mm. Uh, and, and they do a lot of good work for refugees. They, they often do it in a much lower key than some other groups supporting refugees. And I've, mm. I've told them this, I've said, you know, why don't you speak out more loudly and explain what you're doing? But I, I've, talked to, I've talked to about a thousand people at, 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 uh, at, at an event uh, commemorating the end of Ramadan, 
and and so I don't think we should. I think it is pernicious to say that, it, that there is an Islam threat. There are people who are Muslim by belief who play an important part in our society in our community, and I think we have to we have to be welcoming, not treat them as treat them as the enemy. So mm -hmm. I think that statement by those French generals was a particularly reprehensive one, bearing in mind the position of the National Front. Uh, in the forthcoming yeah. in, in the next yeah. French elections. Yeah. And I, I saw that um um uh, who was it? The 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 lead negotiator for the Brexit ne uh, negotiations, the French guy, what was his Barney. name? Barnier, Barnier. Yeah, Barnier, yeah. He he came out and said we should have a five year stop on on uh, immigration. Did you see that as a result? Well, well, I, I I saw some. I'm not sure I picked up that particular comment. Well, I I don't I don't I don't think that's right. Look, every country has the right to decide on immigration, it's immigration yeah. policy. <laughs> but we have a human and international humanitarian obligation as regards refugees. I think we, we can just put a stop to it. And the best thing is international cooperation. Of course, uh, cutting cutting our aid budget from 0.7 to 0.5 percent of GDP doesn't help because no. some of that money was going to countries. Uh, where, where that needs stability, and if we reduce the aid, we're destabilizing those countries, and more people will be on the move. Mm. So it's it's a self-defeating policy, mm. and I, I think I think we have to have a more progressive policy as regards the countries from which there are these population flows. We have to do something in a more concerted way about Libya, which is which which is on a key route for people crossing, but where a country where, where there are virtually detention camps for refugees run by the traffickers. It's a shocking situation there. And mm. we have to have a much more international approach to this and see if we can um, uh, you know, support countries where there are conflicts to help them to stabilize. That, mm. would, that would do more to reduce population flows than anything else. Mm. It'd be amazing, wouldn't it, if, if um, you know, Boris Johnson's Global Britain, he talks about all these slogans, Global Britain, and uh, reconnecting with the Commonwealth, um, which seems quite internationalist and yet the home office is driving an agenda in my opinion that is incredibly nativist so it's a quite a weird yeah. um i agree i agree absolutely yes mm. um I, I what was i going to ask you I, I i wanted to ask you specifically um about how my community people people listen to this podcast can actually get involved because a lot of people i think will, will, will hear this conversation and hear hear your words and be compelled to want to do something but i think many may not know what the best use of their time is some may only have you know an hour a week some might have you know more time than that what are the practical things that people can do well of course well you mentioned care for cali they also safe passage the charity with which i work very closely they do a lot of good work for for child refugees uh, there is an organization called help refugees there are several who are good so one thing would be of course to support them uh, uh, now uh, the other thing is of course to lobby uh, you know please uh, lobby your MP if they're doing a good job on refugees and pat them on the back. If they're doing a bad job, ask them what they could do, whether they couldn't be persuaded to be more supportive of refugees. Mm. I think it's important there should be as much public pressure on our politicians as possible so that they don't think that the issue of refugees is simply concocted by people like you and me mm. and nobody else. So I, I would urge that. I would urge approaches to local councillors and local authorities. Okay. Local authorities can be very helpful and supportive. The, they can also influence their MPs. I think it's important. And I think particularly about if you think your MP is not sympathetic, you know, it's important that, that that man or woman should hear the views of people who, who, who are humane and humanitarian. Mm. Then at a local level, I think it's important to engage with other groups, to engage with groups and see how supportive you, you, you can be. Uh, refugee, uh, refugees need to be able to learn English. Uh, schools may need a bit of help and support, uh, but, uh, but the refugees, uh, one of their urgent pleas is to speak English, to help to speak English. Local authorities can help in that, and colleges and so on. So that, that is another one. And then there is a, one of the other key things is to normalize, is to normalize the situation for refugees mm. and to make them feel they're part of the community. Uh, and with children, you know, football, sport, all these things are terrific ways in which they can just become normal and become part of our community. So there are a lot of positive things that can be done politically yeah. with councillors uh, and MPs and, and, uh, and with local authorities. And then at a local level, to make people feel welcome. Obviously money is useful, Safe Passage and other organizations can always do with money. Yeah. Uh, and if you want to do the extreme thing, sometimes these organizations will take volunteers mm -hmm. uh, and you can offer to be a volunteer 
and maybe you could volunteer in Britain. Now, they, they, they don't have many places for volunteers because volunteers need a lot of help and support, but sometimes other places come up and youthful people to go and support them and the extreme thing would be for a young person to go and work in Calais or something for a year. Yeah, that's terrific. But there may not be that many openings. <laughs> Care for Calais would be good at knowing about that and help refugees. Um, and then again, work work with local faith groups. I say that as a human, but work with local mm. faith groups. Mm. They're pretty good. Work with local trade unions. They're good. It's not a party political thing. Mm. It's not the property of one political party, even though I'm. A, very passionate Labour Party member. It's not the property of one political party, uh, and one has to reach out to people in other part political parties and across the range of faiths, uh, as well as the humanists, uh, to see what support we can give. So uh, it's important to add to public opinion and have a public voice. Brilliant. That's a, that's a really good list, actually. There's loads in there. And what I'll do when I upload this is I'll, I'll include links to all the things you just mentioned there as well. So um, I just wanted to end on, you are quite involved with Safe Passage, aren't you? I, I know yes, you've I done am. yeah a lot of um, a lot of work with them. Could you just talk to me a little bit about Safe Passage as a charity? Because I'm really interested in their work and, and the stuff that they do. Well, because the best thing is to ask them themselves. They can speak better what they do. That's but true. Yes, they've been very helpful. Well, they're particularly good, particularly concerned with child refugees. They're good at campaigning. They're very helpful in terms of lobbying. Uh, they have workers in some of these countries uh, who, who who help to facilitate the refugees coming to Britain. Uh, and they're very upfront in terms of what the policies are advocating, uh, the causes they're wishing to put forward. Uh, and I think they're, they're an excellent charity and I, I, I work very closely with them. And they've got a very bunch of dedicated people as well. It's a real joy, real pleasure to work with people who've got such a, young people who've got such a high level of commitment and dedication to a cause, which a cause that I believe in as well. So it's great they have this, they have this energy emotional and physical and political energy which is good absolutely i think you have to you have to have that don't you if, if you're working in, in yeah. something where there's there's so much trauma involved and you know lots of vulnerability i used to, I, I formerly worked as a, as a school teacher with vulnerable young people and i remember feeling very burnt out after 12 12 or 18 months just because of just because of how many bad stories you hear and how much exposure you have to sort of sadness and, and trauma so I think yeah, that that well, high energy is, is 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 very important, and obviously the compassion and empathy as well. Brilliant. Yep, absolutely. Lord Alfdubs. All that. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for for your question. Thank you for giving me a chance to say something, and thank you to the people who are listening for the help. I hope they're able to give to the cause of refugees in one of the ways we've we've talked about and influencing their friends and in public opinion. So yes, these are all positive things. So thank you very much indeed. I was happy to join you in this and, and thank you for giving me the chance. Indeed, thank you. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure and, 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 and a privilege and an honor. So thank you very much for speaking to us. And um, I will hopefully um, be able to share some of these stories with you after this podcast has gone up with those who maybe do end up going and, and, and volunteering. So I look forward to that. Well. And thank you for your, your personal contribution in all this. Thanks very much indeed. Okay. Brilliant. Okay, cheers. Thank Bye -bye. you, Lord Loves.